So as we begin this morning, I would uh, like to ask you to open your Bibles. We're going to be in the same passage throughout the message. We're going to look at it a dozen times, maybe, uh, together. It's Psalm 121 is where I'd like you to be. And if you happen to have a cell phone and you open the Bible app and look for an event, you'll find a Kerbinsville Alliance event there. And you can follow along on your cell phone as well. Um, There's some text there for you that might be helpful to you. I want to begin by asking a couple questions. And my question, the first one is this, where do you look when you're in need? Where do you look when you're in need? Where do you look if you're in trouble? I can remember when I was a kid, my closest brother was nine years older than I. And I was in trouble about something. I'd done something I shouldn't have done. And dad and mom didn't know, but it was inevitable. Dad and mom are going to know about this. And I was old enough to try to think through how can I manage to get out of this trouble. And I thought about my older brother. And I thought that guy is in trouble all the time, all the time. And if there's anyone who knows how to handle this situation, it will be him. So I went to him and I said, maybe he'll help me out. Nope. He ratted me out instead of helping me out. And so that was the wrong place to go when I was in trouble. Where do you go? Where do you look when you're in trouble? Or let me ask this. Where do you look when you need an answer to a question that you don't know the answer to? Now, I'm not talking about Google because, you know, you can say to Google, you know, who's the president of Yugoslavia? And Google can figure that out for you. Google, man, is there anything Google doesn't know sometimes? It's kind of scary, right? I'm not talking about those kind of questions. I'm talking about life questions, like questions concerning wisdom, questions concerning direction. The question's like, I'm not sure what I should do here. Can you help me out? Who would you look to to give you answers? Sometimes I look to my peers. I'll ask another pastor, hey, I'm dealing with a specific situation here. Can you help me? Or often I'll look to the elders because we have great elders at Kermansville Alliance and they have saved my tail many times because I've been smart enough to look to them for wisdom. Who do you look to for that sort of thing? In fact, who do you look to for anything serious in your life, for power? or for help, or for direction, or for motivation when you can't get yourself going, or for discipline, or for peace. Who do you look to? Now, you know the answer, because you're in church. The answer is God. I know the answer to that question, Pastor Steve. I look to God. Can I go home now? Yeah, no, not yet, right? Not yet. Because when you say, I look to God, the question then becomes, what do you mean when you say God? Because God is one of those words like love. That girl, when I was a senior in high school, and I said, I love you, And she said, well, I love you too. We were using two different definitions of that word. She meant, I love you like the guy I'm trying to get rid of, you know, Uh, that kind of love. I don't love you the way you're loving me here. And God is that kind of word too. Someone might say God and mean one thing and someone mean a whole different thing. And so for that reason, I want to talk about who God is and why we should look to him. And what I'd like to do, I'd like to do that by looking at what we call the Alliance Stand, or the Christian and Missionary Alliance doctrinal statement or our statement of faith at the Alliance. And I'd like to talk to you in the weeks that are ahead about who God is and how we relate to him and his nature and what he has done for us and what he offers to us and what we can do with him. That's what we'll be doing in the next few weeks. And we're going to begin this week with the very first item on the statement of faith, which speaks about God saying this. It says, there is, there is one God who is infinitely perfect, existing eternally in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Who do you look to when you're in need? That guy. That's the guy you want to look to, God. Now that very phrase that says, look to God, is a phrase that every time I hear it or think of it, I think of my very favorite psalm. 
If I were to ask you what your favorite psalm is, maybe a musician would say 150. Maybe someone who's kind of lazy would say, I like Psalm 100, I think it's pretty short. Maybe probably a lot of people would say the 23rd Psalm, the Lord is my shepherd. My favorite psalm is Psalm 121 because I love what it says and how it speaks to this issue of looking to God and him looking to us. I'd like to read it with you, follow along if you would. It's only eight or nine sentences long. I'm going to begin right at the start where the writer says, I lift up my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord watches over you. The Lord is a shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all harm. The Lord will watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your coming and going both now and forevermore. So if you ask this guy, if you ask the psalmist who wrote this, where do you look to when you need answers? He would say, I look to God. I look to God because I know that he's real. I see him, as a philosopher might say, as the uncaused cause. Occasionally, someone has called me through the years, will call me. I get a text most recently. I got a text from someone, one of the moms here at church, and said, Pastor Steve, help. I have a really hard question. My son just asked me, who made God? You know the answer to that, right? No one. It's not that he was self-created. That would be a logical circle, wouldn't it? It's not that he was created because then I want to talk to whoever created him. It's that he is uncreated. He is the uncaused cause. He is the unmoved mover. He is the uncreated creator. He is, he is who he is. When he says to Moses, when Moses says, who should I say? I am that I am. He is God with the uppercase G. And that's really the point that the psalmist is making from the very start. Look at the opening words again. He says, I lift up my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? Pause. Why is he looking at the mountains? Well, one reason is this is a song of ascent. So he's headed up to Jerusalem and he sees the mountains there. They don't look like Mount Hood that is pictured there, but they're pretty impressive mountains anyway. So maybe he's just writing this because he sees those mountains, but, but more accurately, he's probably saying, do I look to the mountains when I need help? Because a lot of pagans would look to the mountains when they needed help. They worshiped in the quote, high places. That's where you would go if you wanted to worship a false god, a pagan god. So where do we look? Do we look to the high places? He says, no. In fact, compared to the God of the Bible, the gods of the mountains, they aren't even real. They're not even gods. They're made up gods. They're invented gods. Occasionally, you'll be speaking to someone who says, you know what? I think the whole God thing of the Bible, I think that's an invention of human beings to control other human beings. If I can get you to believe that there's a God and I'm his buddy, then I can control your life. And I can see where they might feel that way. But something that's always made me scratch my head, you know, like this. You ever do that? Scratch your head? Splinters, right? Something that's always made me scratch my head when I think about that is this. Why would humankind, if they were going to invent a God, invent the God that is in the Bible? Because the God that is in the Bible makes some demands of us that, generally speaking, we don't like anyone to make demands of us, especially these kinds of demands. We, if we're going to invent a God, we're going to invent a God that knows how to have fun. (laughs) Not the God of the Bible. I mean, we're going to invent a pagan God, a party God. That's the kind of God that human beings would invent. And more often than not, the gods in the mountains or in the high places, they were party gods. They often were tied to fertility cults. 
Guess how you worship in a fertility cult? Yeah. That could be a lot of fun to sinful man, to sinful woman. So, yeah, that's why Israel was so frequently drawn to worship the gods in the high places because of that kind of temptation. The gods in the high places, those are gods that have been invented to cater to our sinful desires. And it naturally follows that gods like that are gods that are not infinite, rather they're finite because you can understand them, you can profit from them, you can control them, you can make them to fit with your own sinful passions and desires. But the God of the Bible, he is someone you can't control. He made everything and he manages everything. Look at verse two, how he speaks of this God. He says, my help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. In other words, he's the one who made it. He's the one that's in charge of it. He is the one that manages it. Nothing manages him because he's infinite. He's his own person. You can't put him in a box. Infinite, incomprehensible. Robbie, if I'd have been thinking this morning, I'd have had you sing Chris Tomlin's song, Indescribable, you know? Can you just stand and sing that for us right now? I'm kidding you, buddy. I'm just kidding. He's ready to get up. I love Robbie, right? Think of the words of that song. Indescribable, uncontainable. That's the God of the Bible. All-powerful, untamable. That's the God of the Bible. To put it the way Mrs. Beaver put it, he's not safe, but he's good. That's the God of the Bible. That incomprehensible element to him, you kind of catch it when you look at that first line in the statement of faith where it says there is one God who is infinitely perfect. There's the infinite part of him, perfect, existing. And here's where the water gets muddy. Existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's the Trinity. Do you understand the Trinity? I mean, who would like to stand up right now and explain the Trinity? Right. (laughs) Ed Roberts might give it a shot. Matt McCracken says, I'd kind of like to go for that. I think John wanted to volunteer on that, right? He's ready for that, right? Yeah, but here's, I'm just going to say it. I don't get it. I don't understand the Trinity. I can talk about it. I've written sermons about it. I've preached sermons about it. I grade papers on it. But honestly, I don't get it. One being existing in three persons. How's that even possible? How does that even work? There are a lot of things about this God of the Bible that I don't understand. The Trinity is just one of them. How does that happen? And yet, hear this, hear this. There are a lot of things in life that I don't understand. And yet I appreciate them, I respect them, and I accept them. Every farmer knows you can't put wet hay, bale it, and put it in your barn and sleep well. Who knows why? What if you do that? What are you risking? What do you got, Bo? Fire? (laughs) Bo. I said wet hay. Somebody else. Who's got the right answer? Bo's right. It's fire. I can remember as a kid growing up on a farm, and I'd say, we're going to bale that hay. And dad would say, no, we're not baling that hay. It's too wet. I said, well, what what difference does it make? Because I got something going tomorrow. I'd like to get that out of the way today. And dad said, it's too wet. If we bale it today, it will catch fire. Okay, Elaine grew up in New York City. She's looking, she's got that look. Here's why, Elaine. Well, I don't know why. I just know that it happens. I remember growing up and thinking what Elaine's thinking. That doesn't make any sense at all to me. And so I went to my dad, who was a very intelligent man, and I said to my dad, how is it that wet hay can catch fire? That makes no sense. And here it is, ready? 
It's a chemical reaction. Yeah, it's not helping me. How, how's that catching fire? It's a chemical reaction. Uh, okay, so I guess I'm never going to understand it. I'm just going to have to accept it. So I moved to Kerbinsville, Pennsylvania. One of the elders here, his name is Jim Mitchell. He's passed away. Jim Mitchell was a farmer. Not only was a farmer, he taught chemistry all his adult life, I believe. He taught chemistry to some of you, my guess is. He taught chemistry at Penn State. Whoa. A Penn State chemistry professor. The only thing better than that is a chemistry professor from the University of Pittsburgh. I'm going to say it right now. I went to Pitt. That's why. So here I am. I'm thinking to myself, here's, here's a guy who's a farmer. He knows about the hay, and he knows about that. And I was putting in hay with him. I happened to be out at the farm, and he had baled some hay. And, and I tell you what, the guy was 70 years old. I was 35, and he was working circles around me. And, and so I, I thought, I'm going to slow him down. I'll ask him this question. And I said to him, I said, uh, Mr. Mitchell, you're a chemistry guy and a farmer. Can you tell me, why does wet hay spontaneously combust? And here's what happened. Either number one, either he didn't know and what he said, he was bluffing. I doubt that. Or number two, he knew and he explained it and I didn't understand it. That's pretty likely, right? Or number three, he was playing with me (laughs) and I didn't understand it. And if you know Jim Mitchell, that's real likely, right? And so to this day, I do not know why wet hay catches fire, but I respect it, I accept it, and I treat wet hay differently if I happen to be farming because of it. I don't know how God can be one and be three. I don't know how three persons can make up the Godhead. And all of the illustrations fall short as much as we might like them. I remember when the professor at Tacoa Falls, Dr. McGraw, gave an illustration where he said, some people think of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit as like water, how it's steam, vapor, or it's solid ice, or it's liquid water. And I'm sitting there in my seat in class saying, at last, I understand the Trinity. And he says, the name of that heresy is modalism. And I'm like, I'm never going to understand this, right? It's okay. In fact, it is good. If God were a God that you could understand everything about, then is he really God? I mean, really. If you could know everything there was to know about him, what value, what authority should he have in your life? That's a good question to ponder. Now let's transition a minute here. Let's think. I don't know what you're dealing with this morning. I don't know what you're, you're here with. I don't know what needs you might have. And whatever you're dealing with, maybe you've been looking at different places for help with that. Like, maybe you've been looking to some help, self-help material. And if that's Christian, it can be helpful. Yeah, I'm good with that, right? Maybe you're looking to have your need met to daytime television. God help you if you are, right? Yeah, it's not going to help. Maybe... You're looking to a God that you can control, that if you talk just right to God and you pray just right and you trust hard enough and you believe hard enough and you don't think that I give, no, that's not it either. The God that you need to look to is this God who is mysterious, unfathomable, unimaginable, whose ways are unsearchable. And when you look to him and say, I have this need, would you help me? You're looking to the one who can deliver. He is the one you should look to. You look to God because you know he's real. You look to God, the God of the Bible, because he looks out for you. I mean, if, if, if you ever created, I'm sorry, let me say it this way. 
If God had created us and then just walked away and say, that was pretty cool. I kind of like what I did there on earth. I'm leaving now. Then there'd be no value in looking to him. But he's not that kind of God. He's the kind of God who not only created you, but he watches you and he looks after you and he talks to you and he connects with you. He interacts in your life. This text says it. It says right at the beginning of verse three, he will not let your foot slip. And the rest of the verse says he won't let you fall. It says actually that he doesn't fall down on the job. He watches over you. Uh, Laurel and I were with her mom on the 4th of July. Brian and Esther and Zach were there as well. And we went down to Clear Creek State Park and we were walking through the park there. If you've been there, we were at the far end of the park. We'd walked that loop. We were coming down. It's kind of a steep paved area and there's always gravel there. And Laurel was walking beside her mom and her mom's shoes were on that gravel, on that pavement, on that steep part. And you know what's coming. Here she is, this, this woman, this older woman. She begins to slip. And my wife has cat-like reflexes. I mean, it was like watching the mother of an infant grab that baby, you know? My wife just went, Phew! and she caught her. It's like, wow, it's like Wonder Woman or something. That's hot. I like that. I like that, right? That's godlike. When you're on the gravel and your way is steep and it's a little bit slippery, there is someone walking right beside you and he will not let your foot slip. He catches you before you fall if you're walking close to him. And he doesn't neglect you. He who watches over you will not slumber. He's never distracted. He is never resting. He is never negligent. He doesn't find something more important to do than watch over you. His eye is on a sparrow. You know he watches you. Always. He's attentive to you. He is without the negative implications. Catch this. He is the ultimate helicopter parent. (laughs) Because he's watching over you. And as he does this, he protects you from the enemy of your soul. Look at verse five. It says, the Lord watches over you. The Lord is a shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day nor the moon by night. I was reading online and I read a commentator online who said that what that means is the sun's harmful rays won't hurt you during the day and some mysterious lunar harmful rays won't hurt you at night. You really gotta be careful what you read on the internet, right? Oh, that internet. The word for that, the theological term for that is balderdash. That's what that is, okay? Anyone in ancient times who was reading this psalm would know exactly what is meant here because those words have a spiritual connotation. The sun and the moon in ancient times and even until today are symbolic representative of demonic deities. When we were in Otavala, there we were in Otavala and there was, um, we were going through the world, market par- world marketplace in, in Ecuador and I'm, I'm with Randy and Joy Newburn, and we're walking together. There are missionaries there at that time. And as we're walking together, there was stuff for us to buy, blankets and hats and all kinds of things. A lot of that had a sun on it with a face, you know, like the sun in the sky with a face. And I picked one of those up, and, and the missionary said to me, he said, uh, don't, don't buy that. And I said, okay, why? He said, because that sun was no doubt made by someone who did it in honor and in reverence to a false sun god because that is the god that the people here would worship. And you don't want to take that home with you. I said, wait a minute. In the kitchen in my mom and dad's house, they have a clock that has a sun's face on it. He said, yeah, that was made in China. Don't worry about that, (laughs) right? But you get that. The sun in that culture and in the culture of the psalmist day in pagan lands was representative of a false deity. Likewise, the moon, in fact, 
What's at the top of our steeple? A cross. What's at the top of a minaret, a mosque, in an Arab land? A crescent. It's not the wrench. (laughs) It's the moon. So when the psalmist is saying the sun will not harm you by day and the moon will not harm you by night, he is saying that God actually protects you from evil forces, from demonic forces when you look to him. And we encounter demonic forces probably daily because our struggle isn't against flesh and blood. Our struggle is against spiritual forces of evil within the heavenly realms. And God delivers us from that evil. He does what Jesus prays that he would do in the Lord's Prayer, deliver us from evil. He does that if we look to him. In fact, when you look at verse 6, and you see the language there in the translation I'm using, it says, the sun will not harm you by day. That word harm is more often translated evil in the Hebrew scripture into English. In fact, it appears 442 times in the Old Testament, and only three of those times is it translated harm. 70% of those times about it's translated evil. So you might read those words as saying, the sun will do you no evil by day, and the moon will do you no evil by night, because God is there. And when you look to him, he delivers you from evil. So what evil do you need delivered from? What evil has come into your life from which you need deliverance? And where are you looking for that deliverance? I can remember one time when I was a kid, I had a lucky rabbit's foot. Did anyone have one of those? Let me see. Yeah, we had a lot of them, right? Yeah. I had that lucky rabbit's foot and... uh, you know, carry it around. That and my pocket knife, that pretty much filled my, my britches when I was, you know, a kid. I can remember I had a Sunday school teacher that saw it and said, Stephen, this is the Sunday school teacher, Stephen, you shouldn't have a good luck charm. You should look to the Lord. You should look to the Lord. You shouldn't have a good luck charm. Uh, okay, that didn't convince me though. I still carried it, you know, because it said it was a good luck charm and I could use that as a little boy. That's when I was thinking. And then I got to thinking and I realized that that rabbit's foot wasn't quite so lucky for the rabbit that was wearing it to begin with. (laughs) I don't look to good luck charms. I look to God. Why wouldn't I? I don't look into the mountains. Does my help come from there? My help comes from the Lord who made those mountains, and he can deliver you from the enemy of your soul. And the enemy of your soul will plant some pretty wicked thoughts. He'll sow division between you and a brother and sister in Christ over something that just bugs both of you to death. Or he will try to discourage your heart and make you feel despairing and hopeless. Or he will try to tempt you towards sin, saying God doesn't like you and he's leaving you out of this sin. You need to go ahead. He'll do whatever he wants. And if you want deliverance from that, where do you look? You look to the God who made you. You look to him. He's the God who looks out for you. He is the God that covers you from beginning to end, from A to Z. So I have this saying that I say. I said it to Robbie this morning. It's this. I'm always there for you, man, right? So I said to Robbie today, I said, hey, um, if you need my guitar, it's always in my office. You're welcome to get it if you need it. And he said, that's okay. I have my guitar here, Pastor Steve. I said, okay, well, I just want you to know, here's the line. I'm always there for you, man. I say it all the time. I say it to my son. I say it to my daughter. I say it to my wife. I'm always there for you, man. This week, this past week, my son-in-law did something for me. I said, Brian, thanks for doing that. And he looked over his glasses and said, I'm always there for you, man. (laughs) I said, my work is done here. (laughs) Yeah. But if if you haven't discovered it yet, you eventually will. No one is always there for you. This is the truth. 
No one is always there for you except God. Because people have failings and people have inabilities. Maybe someday that person you thought would always be there for you isn't there for you because because of an evil or because they're just lazy or because they don't care. Maybe it's a character issue for them or maybe they're just unable to be for you. They'd love to be there for you, but they can't. No one will always be there for you except God. He's always there for you, man. Always. And you see this in the final verses of Psalm 121. This is why I love this psalm. You see it in verse seven where it says, the Lord will keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your coming and going both now and forevermore. Take a minute and examine the extreme terminology that is in those two verses. It says the Lord will keep you from all harm. It doesn't just say harm. They took the time to write the word all there. Everything. God will keep you from that harm. The Lord will watch over your life. It's not just God will watch over you today. It's your whole life from A to Z. The Lord will watch over your coming and going. No matter what, when you're being born, the Lord's watching over you. When you're dying, the Lord's watching over you. And all the comings and goings in between there. He's always there. And then, I mean, look at that last phrase. Both now and forevermore. He has got you covered from the cradle to the grave. He's always there for you, man. That's the God we look at. That is the God that we look to. We do not look up to the mountains. We look to the God who is infinitely perfect. We look to the God who is existing eternally in a way that we can't begin to understand, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We look for a God that is too big to fit into our box, a God that is too hard for us to grasp, a God that we cannot control, a God that is not safe, but he's good. We look to him. We look to him. And he looks out for us. I want to pray as we wrap up our time that you would be able to look to this God. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Let's bow our hearts. Father in heaven, as we are here together, we recognize that you are a bigger God than we can begin to understand. And that is not a bad thing. That is a good thing. We'll never comprehend all of you, not even in eternity, because you are beyond comprehension. We are thankful that you care for us the way you do. Father, we are thankful that you're a good, good father who looks to our needs. We are thankful, Jesus, that you're a savior who lays down his life for us. We are thankful, Spirit, that you draw us to yourself and inhabit us and empower and direct us. Thank you. May we always look to you. This I pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Our Father everlasting, the all-creating one, God Almighty, through your Holy Spirit, conceiving Christ the Son, Jesus our Savior.